Isaiah chapter 61, and we'll be reading from the end of the chapter in verse 10 and down to um, chapter 62, verse 5. We are finishing up our Advent series called From Heaven He Came and Sought Her as we have uh, been going through this uh, one particular verse in the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, and we have been looking at each phrase of this verse and have been taking that as our theme each week. And now we come to the last part of the verse. So it's from heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. And so this morning that is our theme. Not, not just that we are called to be His holy bride, the church to be Jesus' bride, but specifically that this is a transformation that takes place. That we go from being a people who were desolate, to use the language of Isaiah, we go from being a people who were desolate to being a people who are married, who are in covenant with God Himself. And so this is a great transformation that takes place within the sinner's life. And particularly as we reflect on this theme this morning, I hope that it really emphasizes the hope that we should all have as we, uh, as we take joy in knowing Christ. There are many who may be within a particular season during this season of grief and of despair because this season brings up memories of people whom they no longer have. Or this season brings up memories of some tragedy that has come into their lives. And so I hope that this morning as we see the great work that has been done for us through Christ that it will give us hope. And so I want to begin by reading in chapter 61 of Isaiah, and uh, uh, chapter 61, verse 10, and then we will read to 62, verse 5. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, 
so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Let's pray. Father, we were a people who were not a people. We were a people who were without God in the world. We were a people who did not have Your covenants, who did not have Your promises, who did not have Your prophets, who did not have Your Word. And You sent Your Son to be a light to us who dwelled in darkness. And Your Son came as a sign to the nations that the work of God towards sinners was spreading from Zion to the nations. Father, we are a people now who have been made Your people. We are a people who have been brought into an everlasting covenant with You. And You have given us these glorious promises that now in Christ and now that we have been brought into fellowship with the people of Israel by Christ, now that we are in covenant with You, all of the promises that You gave to Your people Israel are promises that are to us. And so we can rejoice, O God, in the great hope of a renewed day when all of creation will be made new, when our bodies will be made new, and we will dwell in Your presence forever, and You will be the light of day to us. And so, Father, we thank You and we praise You for this great hope that we have in Christ. Father, we know that This time of year is not only a time of joy for many, but a time of great sorrow as they contemplate dark realities in their own lives. Not having someone, a husband or a wife or a friend who's no longer with them. So Father, I pray this morning would be a morning of light and joy for them. That in this despair, the promises of the Gospel would shine brightly. Father, encourage us by Your Word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Despair and hopelessness can be some of the most oppressive powers within a person's life. It can be debilitating. There's a loss of meaning and purpose. The world seems to have lost all of its color and beauty. Everything in their experience is like being under an overcast sky. 
The future is not a a day of good things to come. The future to them is only a day in which all of their greatest fears are fulfilled. There's an overwhelming sense of loneliness. A sense that there's no one there to help. That there's no one who can understand their situation. And all of these thoughts and fears become weights that bear down on the body so that even the slightest motivation to move and to get out of bed in the morning becomes an unbearable task. Spiritually, despair is only able to see judgment. A person's conscience is condemned by the law of God. Eternal punishment for the sins they have willfully committed is what they believe they deserve, which is a right estimation, but it's the only thing they believe they will receive. Even if they believe in the grace and mercy of God in the Gospel of Christ, they don't see how that grace could ever be for them. They're too far gone. They're too sinful. And even if grace could save the chief of sinners, as it did with the Apostle Paul, they would be the exception to the rule. William Cooper was a man who suffered greatly under this kind of despair. You may know Cooper from his hymns. There is a fountain filled with blood, or or the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. These are hymns that have ministered greatly to many generations over Time, But Cooper was also a man who battled with depression. His depression would come on strong, very strong, about every ten years or so. This was not only before he became a Christian, but even after he became a believer. But it was only after he became a believer that he truly found a remedy to this despair. Before he knew the Gospel, Cooper's awareness of his own sinfulness ran deep. I mean, deeper than most people's awareness of it was and is. He believed he was guilty of every sin imaginable. And the only exception to this, which was murder would soon itself no longer be an exception. His despair took him down a dark path of attempting suicide on more than one occasion. But every time he tried, something, we would say the providence of God, something would prevent it. For example, he tried to hang himself three times on one occasion with a garter. But on his third attempt, he lost consciousness, and the garter broke 
Alondrus found him and called his uncle, and then he was sent to an insane asylum. But his attempt failed. After these attempts, his conviction of sin ran even deeper. Because now, the one transgression that was lacking had been committed. He later wrote that after his attempted suicide, a sense of God's wrath and a deep despair of escaping it instantly succeeded. The fear of death became much more prevalent in me than ever the desire of it had been. But strangely enough, it was in the insane asylum where he came across a Bible. And as he came across this Bible and began to read it, the Lord began to soften and comfort his heart with the promises of the Gospel. He wrote, Having found a Bible on the bench in the garden, I opened upon the eleventh chapter of St. John, where Lazarus is raised from the dead, and saw so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears upon the revelation. Little thinking that it was an exact type of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending towards Myself. I sighed and said, Oh, that I had not rejected so good a Redeemer, that I had not forfeited all His favors. Thus was My heart softened, though not yet enlightened. Though He didn't immediately believe the promises of the Gospel were for Him, in that moment, He continued to be led back to the Bible. He continued to go back to the Word and to read. And He came across Romans 3.25, which in the King James Version says that Christ Jesus is the One whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Immediately, he said, I received the strength to believe it and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made. My pardon sealed in His blood and all the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment, I believed and received the Gospel. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. It was the promises of the Gospel then, and even later, when he continued to experience similar struggles, it was only the promises of the Gospel that would free him from the weight of his despair and hopelessness. Well, this morning we find the people of Judah on a corporate scale. 
in this kind of despair and in a desperate need for some kind of divine remedy. They have had a long history of disobedience and rebellion against God. Generation after generation, they have broken the covenant that they made with God and that they promised they would keep with God. They have turned to idols and to other nations as their source of strength and security, and they have found generation after generation that those nations and those idols don't provide them the slightest shred of security. They have found that those nations rather despise them and only want to oppress them. They've been betrayed on each occasion that they have gone away from God and to some other object of worship. They've broken all of God's commandments. They've broken His commandment to keep the Sabbath. That through the Sabbath, the world might know that God is the sovereign Creator. They've broken that commandment. They've become murderers. They've become adulterers. All of their rulers and all of those who are in power have made it their life's ambition, it seems, to oppress the poor and the weak and the orphan and the lowly of society. And Isaiah has been called by God to prophesy to this people to warn them of a coming judgment if they continue down this destructive path, as well as to provide them with promises and incentives to repent. To call them back to covenant faithfulness. But by the time we come to Isaiah 59, it appears as if there's no hope for this people. Their day is over. Isaiah says of them in verse 3 of Isaiah 59, Your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Verse 7, Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Verse 9, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness But we walk in gloom. There is only hopelessness and despair at this point. It is clear that the people have no ability to save themselves. They have no ability to reform themselves. In their own strength, they continually fail. Their own wisdom leads them astray. And like Cooper, the question becomes, 
Who can save this people? Is there any hope for this people? Their iniquities have separated them from God. So what possible hope can they have for the future? What begins to emerge at the end of Isaiah 59 and what is further developed is an answer to this depressing situation. At the end of Isaiah 59, we see the Lord promising good news to this people who walk in gloom. It says in Isaiah 59, verse 15, the Lord saw it. He saw the situation in Judah and it displeased Him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then His own arm brought Him salvation and His righteousness upheld Him. He promises them in verse 20, a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. What the people trapped in an endless cycle of sin and despair needed was a divine intervention. They needed God Himself to act on their behalf, to use the power of His own arm to lift them out of the darkness they were in and to bring them into the light. So they needed hope. I needed hope. But hope can't come from our own imaginations. A real hope cannot come from our imaginations. And a real hope cannot rest on uncertainty. The only hope that can give life and can give light to the despondent is a hope grounded in the one who determines the beginning from the end. And that's what God gives them. A real hope. A promise that He will send to them an anointed one. A Christ. A Messiah. And that this Christ will do a work in and among them that will completely transform them. When we come to Isaiah 61 and 62 we hear from this Christ Himself. It is the Christ who is speaking here. Isaiah 61 is the passage of Scripture that Jesus quoted in Luke's Gospel and the passage that He declared had been fulfilled in Him. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, it says, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, to bring the Gospel to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Favor. And so when we read this passage, understand that we are reading the words of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to His people before Jesus came in the flesh. And at the end of Isaiah 61 and into chapter 62, the Christ continues to speak to His people. And He tells them of the work that He will do for them. 
And this is where we, as His people today, can be equipped ourselves with the weapons of the promises of God to fight our own periods of hopelessness and despair. Christians go through seasons of testing. When you become a believer, everything is not always great. That's a prosperity false gospel. That if you believe in Jesus, your life will become great. All of your financial struggles will be ended. All of your pain and your bodily weaknesses will be ended. That's a false gospel. Christians are promised that we will go through seasons of testing. And what is tested in those seasons is our faith. Peter wrote to the early believers about the various trials they were facing. And they were causing them to grieve. And he said that they were necessary. These trials, these testings were necessary so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when we enter into these seasons of testing, when despair begins to set in, when the awareness of your own sinfulness becomes more than you can bear, remember these four promises taken from Isaiah 62. First, the Lord promises that His people will have a new name. The Lord promises that His people will have a new name. He says in verse 2 of 62, Speaking of the work that He's going to do for His people, you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. The promise of a new name is a promise of transformation. A promise of being made holy new. Saul was given the new name Paul on the Damascus road. Jesus saved him as the chief of sinners and transformed him into being one of his apostles who was zealous for the spread of the gospel in the nations. Simon was given the name Peter. The Lord changed him from being only a fisherman to being what he called a fisher of men. Made him a rock and a pillar of the church. Abram was given the name Abraham. Abram went from being an idolater, a man who did not know God, a man who did not have any offspring and no, no hope for an inheritance to be passed down to his own children. He goes from being an idolater and that kind of man to being a worshiper of God. And the one through whom God made covenant promises that would bring blessings to all of the nations and the one through whom an offspring would come. He became the father of many nations. Total transformation. And here in Isaiah 62, a transformation takes place with the people of God. Justice and righteousness were absent from them. It didn't exist. You read the Old Testament, 
You read what's going on with the people of Israel. It's only gloom. But now in verse 1, look at verse 1, we see that the Lord is acting for them. And their righteousness is going forth as brightness. And the nations are seeing it. They go from being the cause of God's name being blasphemed among the nations to being trophies of His grace. And this is not because of anything that they have done on their own. It's not because of their own resolves. It is because of what Isaiah 61.11 says. The Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The Lord Himself will do what they could not do. He will make them into a people where righteousness goes forth to the nations. Look at verse 4 as well. He says, You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. They go from one extreme to the other. They go from being a people who are abandoned and left to their own devices to a people who are brought into a covenant relationship with the Lord. This is what Christ does for His people. This is what the Messiah does for His people. He changes their status and their nature. Because of our sin, we were condemned before God. But because of Jesus, we are justified before Him. Because of our sin, we were enemies of God. But because of Jesus, we become His family. Because of our sin, we were covenant breakers and adulterers. But because of Jesus, we are forgiven and bound in a covenant of marriage to Him. And just as the people of Judah were given this promise of a new name, so also are we, His new covenant people, who endure all trials and who endure all afflictions by the grace of God, promised a new name. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The promise of a new name, the promise of a transformation goes out to the people of God. Second, The Lord promises that His people will be the representatives of divine royalty. The Lord promises that His people will be the representatives of His divine royalty. In other words, the world will know that the Lord is King through His people who serve as signs of that kingship to the world. Verse 3 says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Notice, notice 
that it does not say here, as other texts do, that they will be wearing a crown. You find that in Revelation? That's not what it says here. It says that His people will be a crown. A crown is a sign of royalty for the one who possesses it. And so here, the Lord is saying that His people are going to be the signs of His royalty. They're going to be witnesses. They're going to bear witness in their own lives to His divine power and kingship over all creation. Peter, Peter in his first letter, picks up on this idea. When he writes to encourage this this early church who was suffering under various trials and who were grieved by their various trials. He picks up on this idea. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Friends, when you are unsure, when you're unsure of the purposes of God, when your soul is burdened, and you fear whether or not the grace of God is sufficient for you, remember this promise. God will make you into a crown of beauty. God has attached the reputation of His own name to you. The glory and the royalty and the kingship of God being made known across the entire globe is attached to what you will become. So that is a guarantee. If God's greatest desire is for His glory to be known, and He has ordered the creation and ordered salvation in such a way that His people become the manifestation of that glory, you can have an everlasting and a rock-solid hope that you will not fall away. That God will keep you, that whatever trial, whatever tribulation, whatever despair may be before you, you can look to the promised reality that you will become a crown in the hand of God and made beautiful in His sight. Third, the Lord promises a restored creation. He promises a restored creation. You know, it's very often the case that despair sets in when our relationship to the creation is broken and is in conflict. A husband can't find a stable job to support his family. Someone who is aging finds that they can no longer do the things that they used to do because their immune system is breaking down and they're getting sick over and over again. A parent loses their child to cancer. 
All of these tragedies can sink a person into hopelessness. And all of these tragedies are the result of a creation that itself is under a curse because of sin. But in verse 4, we see the Lord promising even relief for the creation. He says to the people of Judah, your land shall no more be termed desolate. Your land shall be called married, for your land shall be married. This is an image of the curse of Genesis 3 being lifted. No more. No more thorns in the ground. No more work that does not bear fruit. And we know that as all of these promises are fulfilled in Christ, they move beyond the borders of Judah and encompass the whole world. As Christ fulfills His work and brings in the new covenant, the promise of a land that will be married becomes a promise of the world being married. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 19-21, to For the creation, all of creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Of God. The promise of God to His people is that whatever trials they are facing with creation now is only temporary. And you can look beyond your immediate difficulties and behold a future in which not only will you be transformed into a new creature, but you will be in a land and you will be on a world that itself has been transformed into a new creation. This hope, the Bible teaches us, is a hope that can purify you and save you from despair. Paul says a few verses later in Romans 8, he says, for in this hope, in the hope of our redemption, the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of our bodies, as well as the hope of the creation, obtaining the freedom of the sons of the glory of God. In this hope, we were saved. This hope purifies. So use this hope and remember this hope to battle despair and hopelessness. Lastly, the Lord promises that His people will be His joy. His people will become His joy. He says in verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. One of the greatest moments in a couple's lives is on the day that they get married. 
The two become one flesh. There is celebrating. There is dancing. There is singing. There is feasting. And between the bride and the bridegroom, there is unceasing joy. And the Lord uses that image to paint a picture of the kind of joy He has for His own people. He wants them to know that they are loved by Him and that His desires are for their good. He repeats this promise again in Isaiah 65, speaking of the new creation. He says there, beginning in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. This was one of the promises that William Cooper struggled so hard to grasp. All he could see in himself was a wretch. All he could see was a hopeless sinner. He saw the blackness in his own heart and he couldn't fathom how God could ever be kind towards him. How God could ever show him mercy. And many who struggle with despair struggle with this very same thing. How could God ever look upon me and rejoice? I'm nothing but a sinner. I'm worthless. The only thing that I can count on and the only thing that I can amount to is a place in hell with judgment. But you see the issue there, the issue with Cooper and the issue with despair, is that when that sets in, we're only looking at our current state in that moment. We're only looking at the state of our hearts in that moment. We're only looking at the sinfulness of our hearts now. The Lord looks beyond what we are now and sees what we will become because He will make us into something we are not currently. The Lord's purpose in giving us Christ was so that by the work of the Spirit, we would be made perfectly into His image. And so the Lord doesn't look at His people as irreparably broken. He looks at them as crowns and jewels and as a bride. That is the image He wants to, to sear within our Mind, you find it all throughout Isaiah and especially in the climactic chapter of the new heavens and the new earth. Jerusalem, His people will be His bride. And as you move further down to the rest of the Bible and you come to the conclusion in Revelation, what do you see happening? You see a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And this new Jerusalem is His bride. It is the people of God made perfect and holy and complete. And the marriage supper of the Lamb arrives. 
Friends, that is the hope that we have in Christ. That is what we celebrate and rejoice in. And with these promises, we also have the means of battling despair. This season we are in is a season of celebration, is it not? And it is a season of celebration not simply because the promised, anointed Christ of God, the One who is speaking here in Isaiah, came, but because He came to transform us into something new. To make us His church, a people who were at one time desolate, married. His holy bride. This season is a season of hope because we are reminded that the clouds of gloom have parted and the sun of righteousness, as we sang earlier, shines through. My encouragement to you this morning is to weld these promises to your hearts And not to despair over any situation or over your own weaknesses because the Son of God has come. And the promise is that He will come again. And when He comes, we will all be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul says. What remains within us that is not perfect and that is dark, and that is sinful, will become like a crown in the eyes of God. That is what we hope for in this season. That is what we look forward to every day. And so I'm going to leave you with that encouragement and hope and pray that this Christmas season will indeed be a season of great hope for you. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we thank You for the great hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, from the very beginning when mankind fell into sin, You gave us a great promise that an offspring would rise up and crush the head of the serpent and that creation itself would be restored. And You have given us promises through Your prophets And given us the greatest promise in the coming of Christ. That we as we are now will not always be like this. But you by your Spirit are working within us a great glory and a great righteousness. So that we will be prepared to be presented before you as brides who are without blemish. And so, Father, we thank You for this hope. And I pray, Lord, for this season that we are in, that it would be a great refreshment and reminder of the works You have done and are doing in the world and what we have to anticipate in the future. 